Welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR Show, where we save you time by providing you the too-long-didn't-read summary of cybersecurity topics and news. You can find us on YouTube with video and all the popular podcasting platforms for audio on the go. Now let's get over to your host, John Good. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to this week's episode. This is going to be your Threat Intel Briefing for... November 13th, 2022 through November 19th, 2022. I'm your host, John Good. If you're joining me on YouTube, because we are doing this live on Saturday, I want to thank you for joining me. Make sure to hit the like bell, so uh, the like and the bell icon so that you don't miss future content. You let YouTube know that you're enjoying it and then also subscribe as well. So that way all the new content gets pushed out to you. If you are listening on podcasting platforms, because we are available on all the major podcasting platforms, the Spotify, the iTunes, there's a whole bunch of them, right? If you're listening on there, make sure to also subscribe there and leave us a review. And if you guys think of any, if uh, anybody out there thinks of any kind of topics or anything that you want to see, definitely let me know in the comments or the reviews. If you enjoy what you're seeing, also let me know that too. All that helps out. We look through that. And we look for ways to improve the show and just overall make it better for you. So it's great. With that, uh, and also, uh, last thing, make sure to check out the description because there will be a link to the show notes. So in case you want to see the articles that we're actually talking about, look a little bit, little bit deeper into the articles because obviously we can't cover everything, especially in the more technical stuff. And then also there will be other articles too. So you can see some other important information or important events that happened whether you should be aware of, but maybe not the most important things that we aim to cover here in the show. So uh, with that being said, we're going to go ahead and jump right into the articles. So very first article, Australian federal police saved cyber criminals in Russia behind Metabank hack. The Australian federal police, the AFB, has identified the perpetrators of the hack and attempted extortion of health insurance company Metabank, this commissioner told journalists on Friday. And that's Friday of uh, 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 last week, I believe this was. Yeah. Uh, giving a short press conference without taking questions, AFP Commissioner Reese Kershaw said the force was undertaking covert measures and working around the clock with our domestic agencies and our international networks, including Interpol as part of an investigation. So we did talk about this last week, uh, the, this specific event. So definitely go back and uh, check that out if you want to learn a little bit more far as what we covered last week, but uh, they also have a quote that says, we know where they're coming from, we know who's responsible, and we say that they should be held to account, said Albanese, adding the nation where these attacks are coming from should also be held accountable for the dis- uh, discussing attacks and the release of information, including very private, private and personal information. Yeah, so they're basically saying that Russia is supporting this, which we've seen in a lot of news articles and just events, right? We've seen some countries like Russia and China um, and, you know, parts of that, that part of the world where they are enabling uh, some of these kind of attacks, cyber uh, crime, or they're just not doing anything to prevent it, right? Um, but, you know, that's, that's de- definitely a very important distinction. Uh, a country like the United States or Australia, you know, they're not going to support that, right? Like they don't enable it. They don't give the tools to carry out cyber crimes, at least not intentionally, right? Uh, there was another article that was related to this 
And it says, Australia considers the ban on ransomware payments after Metabank breach. The Australian government announced over the weekend, that, uh, and this was uh, last weekend, that it's considering banning ransomware payments in response to the Metabank data breach. The group behind the hack has been linked by the Australian uh, Federal Police to Russian cyber criminals uh, with connections to the uh, Revil cyber gang, our evil cyber gang, allegedly dismantled by Russia's Federal Security Service earlier this year. So again, you know, kind of considering uh, or concerned that Russia is enabling groups like this. Uh, but now the Australian government is suggesting making ransomware payments illegal to decrease the profitability of data breaches for criminal organizations. The Metabank breach has taken Australia by storm, so it's not surprising the government is analyzing how to handle cyber incidents moving forward, but isolated knee-jerk response, responses only make the problem worse, Schroeder told InfoSecurity. So that's kind of a theme across anything in cybersecurity and tech and really anything that's going to be impactful, you know, at all, right, in a business, in life. And you have to be careful of knee-jerk reactions. Specifically with governments, you know, you have to be careful on the kind of actions that you take because the things you say, the things you do, those can all impact you know, your country, your citizens, the people in your country, the businesses in your country. And so you have to be careful on the stance that you take. And obviously, like with this, if you're making it basically illegal to pay uh, ransomware or data breach uh, incidents, then you're really handcuffing those companies so that they can't, you know, they can't do it, right? They can't pay. We've seen in even like the US and other countries, We've seen companies pay uh, ransomware groups to, you know, prevent the exposure uh, or the release of their information. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, I guess. But, you know, really just making it illegal to do is um, certainly, I guess, one response to that. But I guess we'll see, you know, kind of how this evolves. I don't know that this is going to continue to be how it is where it's literally, you know, illegal to do it. They might think of other ways to do it or combat, uh, other, other ways to combat ransomware. So I think this is one that is going to probably continue to evolve some. Um, and especially, again, this was in uh, last week's episode two that we talked about this originally. So yeah, we'll see what happens. Uh, next article, GitHub now supports private vulnerability reporting for public repositories. Code hosting company GitHub has unveiled a new direct channel for security researchers to report vulnerabilities in public repositories. The feature needs to be manually enabled by repository maintainers, and then once active, it enables security researchers to report any vulnerabilities identified in their code. According to the company, security researchers often feel responsible for alerting users to a vulnerability that could be exploited. So GitHub itself. GitHub is a place that allows developers to create code and manage that code through the, uh, through the development lifecycle and through its lifecycle. So if you created some software, you put it on your GitHub repository and you release it to the world, and then you want to do revisions or updates and you know, basically improve that code, put in fixes, then GitHub is a tool that can help you manage that. GitHub is also uh, a tool that is widely used across the industries. And that means that really anybody can basically use GitHub. You can go create a GitHub account right now. I have a GitHub account and you can just put stuff on there and then people can go and see 
you know, your code if it's uh, set to public. So that's kind of an important thing. Now, the other part of this is vulnerability reporting. So within cybersecurity or code, programming, all that stuff, uh, one of the things is you want to find vulnerabilities, obviously, right? And so there are researchers or just people in general that will identify vulnerabilities, uh, specifically with like GitHub. Sometimes they will, you know, help you actually fix that vulnerability, right? Like they can fix, um, submit fixes or submit changes to your code. Then you can review them, and if it's good, then you can approve it and merge that, and you know, put it in your actual uh, code base that's being uh, deployed or downloaded by people. Um, you know, so one of the one of the problems with vulnerability disclosure in general is that, you know, if you make it public what the vulnerability is, then obviously, um, you know, people can see that. <laughs> so that can lead to further uh, exposure. Of, uh, further exploitation of that vulnerability because now not only regular users know about that, like normal people that are trying to do good things, but also uh, people that are doing bad things, right? They now know about vulnerabilities. So um, the ability to kind of privately disclose bugs and vulnerabilities um, is definitely you know a positive thing. I mean, we see that a lot with bug bounty programs. So there's a few major uh, platforms like BugCrowd and HackerOne, or, you know, there's others, but basically bug bounties are kind of official programs where you can submit that kind of information. And these platforms, they, they actually host and facilitate that process. Um, but, um, you know, on there, right, you submit a vulnerability to that company, to that vendor, and they can take that in. It doesn't get blasted to the entire user base. Um, so it's kind of the, the same idea. Uh, typically with GitHub, you know, the idea is that a lot more code is kind of public and visible uh, compared to the bug bounty uh, platforms where it's, you know, they're not going to disclose like what the vulnerability is. And then there's this whole responsible disclosure um, idea. And you'll see that in a lot of bug bounty programs where you know, companies don't want their vulnerabilities to release into the public so bad people can see them, right? And so I think it's kind of, it's kind of flowing along those lines. Also, too, GitHub is really uh, focusing on supply chain security. We've seen them make some improvements, you know, over the last several months. And supply chain in general in the industry with software and other things, you know, has really been a focus. So I think that's another important, um, you know, an, another important uh, point to make, right? So uh, next article, 98% of organizations have been impacted by a cyber supply uh, chain breach. 98% of organizations surveyed have been negatively impacted by a cybersecurity breach that occurred in their supply chain according to a new supply chain cybersecurity risk report. In 2021, 97% of respondents said that they experienced the negative impacts of a cyber breach in their supply chain. Digital supply chains are made of the external vendors and suppliers who have network access that could be compromised. And again, this is kind of follow on to that previous article. Uh, the 2022 annual report found that 40% of respondents rely on third party vendor or supplier uh, to ensure adequate security. In 2021, 53% of companies said that they audited or reported on supplier security more than twice per year. That number's improved to 67% in 2022. These numbers include enterprise monitoring in real time. Uh, and then the top pain points reported 
or internal understanding across enterprise that suppliers are part of their cybersecurity posture, meeting regulatory requirements, and working with suppliers to improve their security. Yeah, so again, this follows on that previous article, but you know, focusing on your vendors and how secure your vendors are is an important part of just regular cybersecurity. And a lot of companies, pretty much all companies, you know, you're not going to develop everything that you use, whether that's, you know, products, services, software applications, whatever, right? Like you're not going to probably develop everything that you're using. You're not going to develop your operating system, right? Um, but, you know, you have to be focused on making sure whatever you are adopting or implementing, that it is secure. You know, you can't just go out and get random software that, you know, literally has no security attached to it. That's a bad idea, right? Like that's going to lead to issues. And then part of a lot of compliance frameworks, they involve either, you know, sending out questionnaires about somebody's security. Uh, so like a company to a vendor, they also could involve, you know, actually taking a look at their compliance uh, assessments. So the assessments that an external party has gone into that company and performed a security assessment against that company to identify vulnerabilities or issues, right? Because that just, that helps make the whole process and that whole, uh, that whole channel, the connection, um, more secure. Because if you know where your vendor is weak at, you can take actions, hopefully, to help secure that, uh, that issue, that vulnerability, and mitigate that, that concern. So, um, and then you have to consider that in your own risk profile and how you're, you're doing business, and if that vendor is worth continuing to do business with. So supply chain is huge. Uh, that is definitely something that has shown up a lot more in the news in the last you know several months, six months, this whole year, right? Um, but it's because we're starting to see more and more supply chains cause cyber issues, right? We're seeing vendors get hacked, vendors get breached, and that's leading to the exposure or continued issues with, um, with their customers, right? So not even that company. And, you know, it's a concern, right? And also for attackers, you know, if you can, uh, if you can exploit or infiltrate a vendor and then thereby get like embedded into their code or something and then go downstream where you know, maybe their maybe their customers are way more secure than that vendor is, um, but you just have to get into the vendor. You know, obviously that's an issue, right? Like that's that's a big deal, right? Uh, typically, attackers are going to go for the low hanging fruit because that makes sense, right? Like, why would you want to spend all these resources and go for some super sophisticated Fortune 50 company when you could get a vendor who is connected in somehow, whether software or they have a direct connection? It's way easier, right? way easier. So keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Uh, let's see. Hundreds of Amazon RDS snapshots discovered leaking users' data. Hundreds of Amazon relational database uh, service RDS instances have been found exposed monthly with extensive leakage of personal identifiable information, PII. Platform as a service PAA, PAAS tool first released by Amazon in 2009 provides a database platform based on Various optional engines, MySQL, Postgres, uh, SQL, etc. When using the RDS service in AWS, users can deploy RDS snapshots to back up the entire database uh, instance instead of individual databases. Snapshots can then be uh, shared across different AWS accounts 
both internal and external to an organization. Public RDS snapshots in particular allow users to share public data or a template base with an application. So anytime you're doing backups, right, you have to think about what kind of data is going into that backup. Typically within an organization, right, one of the things that you'll have would be uh, like risk classifications, right? The types of data that you have. Like in military, you have like top secret, secret, confidential. You have these different classifications. A company might have proprietary, confidential, um, you know, external facing or something, public, whatever, right? Like there's these different classifications. So you're supposed to know what kind of data you have and then you protect it that way, right? When you take backups, you have to think about that, right? Because let's say you take a full backup like this, right? So you're taking a backup of the whole instance. Well, what kind of data do you have on there? Instead of being targeted and going after a specific database or a specific table or something, you know, you're getting this whole chunk of data. And so, you know, how is your data uh, segmented? And knowing that is important because you got to know what's in that backup. And then you got to protect that backup to the higher, highest watermark, we call it. But basically, the highest level of sensitivity or kind of classification that that data has. Because if your database instance somewhere has like PII, okay, well then you create a backup of that whole thing. Now you have to treat it like you would treat PII because it's included in that backup, right? Again, it's the highest watermark is kind of the terminology that's used uh, for that. But um, you just, you have to know you know, what you're backing up and then store it appropriately. It's important. Uh, and then the article gives some recommendations. It says for organizations that store or process data within the cloud, processes should be in place to ensure the data remains protected even after making changes. The practice of having a second person confirm their permissions on data while it can be inconvenient can potentially save a lot of labor and the potential for fines, especially in heavily regulated industries. Yeah, so we call this basically uh, two-person integrity or a two-person verification, something along those lines, right? Like there's a lot of terms for it. But, you know, people make mistakes. People don't always uh, catch all the settings that they're supposed to check, uh, especially if it's like a junior person versus senior person. But everybody makes, you know, mistakes or misses things. So I think that's, you know, a really important point. Also, the other kind of shift that we're seeing a lot is doing things in code. So code-based operations right? DevOps, DevSecOps, like all these kind of things. And that's because when you create the code and you create it, you know, how you want it, right? Like you've got the perfect settings that you need in there and great, right? It's in code. Now you're going to create repeatable results. Now you're, uh, you're, you know, you're not worried about that human error, right? You're eliminating that because you don't have somebody that has to go in and manually click check boxes or apply settings apply permissions, whatever, right? Um, and so that that's really important. That's a shift that we're seeing a lot. And we've been seeing that for a little bit, this, this shift towards using code to minimize human error and make consistent results. So think about that in your organization. You know, if you're not using code to do certain things, you probably should start looking at that. That's kind of an important thing. And from a career standpoint, knowing how to do that is a pretty important thing. And that can definitely set you apart and make you more valuable, right? Anytime you can make things more secure, eliminate human error, it's more valuable, right? 
Uh, let's see here. Next article, uh, Disneyland malware team. It's a puny world after all. A financial cyber crime group called itself the Disneyland team has been making the liberal use of visually confusing phishing domains that spoof popular bank brands using Punicode, an internet standard that allows web browsers to render domain names with non-Latin alphabetic, uh, alpha, alphabets like uh, Cyrillic. The Disneyland team uses common misspellings for top bank brands in its domains. For example, one domain that the gang used since March 2022 is US, uh, com, right? So uh, it was used to create, uh, created to fish U.S. bank customers. Makes sense, right? U.S. Hank, and that's with an H. Uh, but this group also usually makes use of Punicode to make their phony bank domains look more legit. U.S. financial services firm Meriprise, um, and they talk about their, uh, their domain. Uh, the Disneyland's team domain for Meriprise customers is, uh, and then it includes... Includes this other domain. Uh, check out the article for this. It, I think where I, where I wrote it down in my notes kind of screwed it up. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, so I think the idea here in general, right, is it's this. You know, this idea isn't necessarily new, right? Um, because basically, you know, you're going after after people who mistype domains, right? So. Maybe they miss a letter. Maybe they accidentally type a different letter, whatever. It is so close that the likelihood of somebody going to that domain dramatically increases, right? Because, you know, like the U.S. Bank one, right? If I'm going to go to usbank.com and instead of, you know, typing a B, I actually, I accidentally type an H or somebody sends you a link and it's, you know, an H instead of a B, you know, when you can do that and use characters that are pretty similar, you know, that's kind of an issue. Um, and then also too, just like in people's brains, one of the things that, um, you know, happens is a lot of times we kind of fill in things, right? So like if there's incomplete information, um, or maybe like a word or something is missing in a sentence, like in our brains, a lot of times we fill that in, right? So like if I'm reading a sentence, and there's a word that should be in there, um, you know, but it's not, you know, like A or something like that, right? Then my brain probably is going to just visually and kind of mentally fill that in and, you know, treat it like it is there. It's just kind of, it's, it's a weird uh, way that we operate, like in our, our that our uh, brains operate, but it, it's a thing, right? Like we literally do that. I'm sure you've probably had that in your own, uh, you know, in your own life where you're like, wait, that, that word wasn't in there or, you know, whatever. But, um, but yeah, like one of the problems with that is that, you know, tricking users can be fairly easy, right? Um, in this case, you know, replacing one letter, right? That I could totally see that tricking people because an H is very close as far as the appearance of a B. And if you're just quickly scrolling through, you're going to see, you know, that it has like the, the line. You're going to see that it basically is starting to look like a B and then maybe click it. Right. Um, so that that in itself is a very um, serious issue. There was another article, too. It's a 42,000 sites used to trap users in brand impersonation scheme. Uh, um, and, you know, this is another article, but a malicious 
for-profit group named Fang Zhao uh, has created a massive network of over 42,000 web domains that impersonate well-known brands to redirect users to sites promoting adware apps, dating sites, or free giveaways. So a little bit different, um, you know, different uh, setup, but same kind of idea. Imposter domains are used as part of what appears to be a massive traffic generation scheme that creates ad revenue for Feng Zhao's own sites or more visitors or customers, and it's in quotes, uh, who purchase traffic from the group. According to a detailed report by Sijax, the threat actors are based out of China. They've been operating since 2017, spoofing over 400 renowned brands uh, from the retail, banking, uh, travel, pharmaceuticals, transport, financial, and energy sector. So same kind of idea, right? Just looking for domains that are uh, very close and just trying to impersonate brands. So it's it's really amazing, like the idea of doing something so simple, like creating a domain that's one character off or you know something of that kind, and then being able to trick you know users. And it works too. Like it works a lot. That's the crazy thing, I think. So, yeah. Uh, Next article, Amazon reportedly plans to lay off about 10,000 employees starting this week. Amazon's planning to lay off approximately 10,000 employees in corporate and technology roles beginning this week, according to a report from the New York Times. The cuts would be the uh, largest in the company's history and would primarily impact Amazon's devices organization, retail division, and human resources, according to the report. The reported layoffs would represent less than 1% of Amazon's global workforce, and 3% of its corporate employees. The report follows headcount reductions at other tech firms. Meta announced last week that it's laying off more than 13,000 or 13% of its staff or more than 11,000 employees, and Twitter laid off approximately half its workforce in the days following Elon's Musk 44 billion acquisition in the company. So, you know, Twitter aside because I feel like there's other things that are going on there because of obvious events. But, you know, and this is a career article too, but in your career, you know, one of the things that you really want to do is stay versatile. You want to stay relevant and versatile because, you know, layoffs happen for sure. And a lot of times you can't, you know, you can't impact it, right? Like you can't just all of a sudden change a company's mind if they're going to lay off people, right? Um, Sometimes it just has to happen, right? You just have to, uh, maybe the business is shifting the way that they're looking and they're trying to really invest in one area and they're going to, you know, kind of eliminate this other area because it's just, it's splitting their focus. Um, You know, maybe the company is just trying to survive through a recession or something. You know, there's a lot of reasons why layoffs can happen. And as an employee, the more versatile that you are, you know, the better off you're going to be in your career because you're going to have other skills. Maybe, right? Maybe if you're in that group that could get, uh, that's going to get laid off, but you're very versatile, maybe another group in your company can absorb you, right? They can bring you on your team, on their team, because you have skills that can be valuable to them and that they can, um, that they can utilize, right? Then obviously networking comes into play. You've got to know people, uh, and try to grow your network so that they know you exist, right? Um, but also too, like let's say that you're getting laid off and you know another team within your company can't take you on, right? The more versatile that you are and the more relevant you are, other organizations are going to have opportunities. 
right? There are always people hiring. That's the thing to keep in mind. Now, obviously in a downturn uh, of a market or something like that, you know, it becomes much more competitive as far as getting hired at other companies. And that can obviously be a challenge, but the more competitive that you stay as an employee or as a professional, you know, the more chances that you're going to have, the more opportunities that you'll have and ability to change around different companies, different organizations, different uh, positions, teams, whatever. Right. And it just, it, it really adds to your job security, right? That's a key thing to keep in mind. Um, you know, a lot of times people are very, very focused on one specific area and they, you know, maybe that area is kind of getting dated and they don't keep their skills updated or current. And then now they've found themselves in a situation where it's very difficult for them to become more competitive. And so one, one thing that I would say like with that is, you know, as an example, right? If you were very focused in, uh, well, let's use a, a current example, right? Like networking, actual physical networking, right? And uh, like traditional networking, right? Cisco switches and things like that. Well, you know, things are evolving in that space. There's software-defined networking. There are other vendors, right, that are more affordable for some companies. They are, you know, like the uh, Ubiquity, Ubiquity, um, you know, and Juniper and whatever, right? Like there's other vendors. Um, but, you know, if you're so focused on networking, traditional networking, and then as that kind of goes away, because that's an area that personally I believe is going to largely go away, right? Like that might not entirely go away, but we're already seeing it, right? People are shifting to the cloud. They're, um, they're offloading some of that networking responsibility because things are just, they're changing, right? And you have to evolve and change with that. Otherwise, you're kind of going to get left behind. And then, you know, in 10 years, 15 years, if you've only been doing traditional networking and you haven't learned other things, I feel like you're probably going to be in a hard spot, right? Look at old programming languages, right? Like very old programming languages, like basic or something like that, right? Like something very, very old. Um, you know, if that's all you knew and you never learned anything else, you never learned Python, you never learned JavaScript or something, right? That's more widespread use now. You know, you probably hit a wall and you either had to change industries or, you know, retire. I don't know, right? But, um, but you know, you had, you had to do something, right? You couldn't just continue to use that data technology as things evolved. So that's something to really keep in mind along with that. Um, Elon Musk, this is another article. Elon Musk gives Twitter employees an ultimatum, stay or go by tomorrow. So this was an article that came out this week. Uh, new owner Elon Musk had told remaining Twitter employees that they'll need to decide by Thursday afternoon whether to stay at the company or quit. In an email to staff entitled A Fork in the Road, Musk said that Twitter would need to be extremely hardcore to succeed. Those who choose to stay should expect long, intense hours of work. Those who will leave will receive three months severance pay, he wrote. In the ultimatum, first reported by the Washington Post, Musk wrote that he values engineers over designers, project managers, and other staff in what uh, he envisions will be a software and servers company. So 
you know, this kind of follows on that other article, right? But I think with this, you know, one of the important things to, um, to notice here, right? Like in your company is, do you have leadership that is, uh, that is relaying their message or their vision, right? Obviously when employees are getting cut, you know, that's a bad, bad thing, right? And staying relevant and all those things that we just talked about are important. But, you know, in a company, if you have no idea what the vision is, how do you adjust, right? Like, how do you uh, try to stay relevant, right? If you know that this company is going to be a software and servers company, and that's the vision of the owner now, right? Because he bought Twitter. Um, but you know that. Well, okay, now you can go and focus on software or, um, you know, servers or whatever. You can focus on that or you can go to another company because eventually, you know, you're probably going to get cut anyways because you're not part of the vision, right? So if you have a, an owner, a leadership team, whatever, that doesn't relay that, then you're kind of out in the dark, right? Like you don't know what's going to be important and where the business is going to evolve. That's a serious issue, right? Because that's, you know, that's kind of when you're really going to get taken by surprise because you're not going to know uh, what, you know, tomorrow could be your last day, right? That, does that make sense? That as long as you know the vision, good or bad, you know the vision and you can either accept it and work towards that vision or you can part and go to another company. Um, so that's, with that article, that's really kind of the, the big thing that I wanted to point out because um, when, you, when you're at a company and you're employed by a company, personally, I would rather know the vision of the company, even if that doesn't align with my skill set, um, because then I have the choice and I kind of know where things are going, right? There's more transparency. And so I, I think that's important. Not everybody is probably going to be on board with that, but you know, that, that's something to consider because you might get surprised if you have a leadership team that doesn't relay that information. No guns, no guards, no gates. NSA opens up outsider, uh, uh, to outsiders and fight for cybersecurity. Many of the nation, uh, national security agency's most talented cyber threat hunters have traded the beige corridors and heavily guarded security perimeter of Fort Meade for a surprisingly, lo uh, surprisingly located new office in an unsecured suburban office park in Maryland. Officials say the pedestrian location is exactly the point NSA Cybersecurity Collaboration Center is designed to bring NSA cyber analysts closer to outside threat hunters. By anchoring the center in a largely unclassified environment, NSA officials say that they're trying to reduce bureaucratic barriers and make it easier for agency talent to work more closely with increasingly viral private sector security researchers. There's a quote, you've got cybersecurity companies on networks everywhere worldwide helping to defend against attacks, uh, Adamiski said. They have great apertures, capability, and expertise. We have different capabilities and authorities. It's really about bringing those two pieces together. So, you know, this is a very interesting thing, right? The NSA is a group specifically that has been known to be very secretive, very um, siloed off, you know, with their information, with the jobs that you can get. It's very, it's highly competitive if you're in the U.S., right? Like, if you're a citizen in the U.S., that's a very highly competitive place to go because, you know, obviously there's a lot of smart people that work there. Uh, it's also in an industry that is very highly regulated, very highly, um, you know, protected. 
And so I think that's an important distinction to make too. But, you know, with this, one of the things that, um, that we've, we're seeing, and especially kind of in that industry in general, right? A lot of times what we see is, you know, some people don't want to go get clearances. They don't want to work in that kind of world because traditionally you've got to get some kind of clearance to work there, right? With the NSA, typically it's a very high level one. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. And so we've seen a lot of people be like, no, like, I don't want to go work there because I don't want to go through all of that, right? I don't want to go sit in a room, be locked up for, you know, the full day, not have my phone, like all this kind of stuff that goes along with that. I get it, right? Um, but, you know, one of the things that government is, you know, obviously slowly uh, adopting or recognizing is that, you know, there are a lot of talented people that don't want to come work for them or that work in the private sector. And, you know, they can offer a lot, um, but you've got to make it easier for them, right? You've got to make it more appealing to them. Um, and then even in this article, they include pictures of like the, um, the workspace. Uh, so it, it's definitely more bright and vibrant colors. But, you know, I think that's an interesting point within companies is that, you know, you've got to try to appeal to the kind of people that you want to come work for you, right? See that with like Google and Facebook and those kind of companies is they go crazy on all the things they offer. They offer, you know, doing laundry and food on site and, you know, I don't know, like all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but, you know, as a company, you've got to appeal to the kind of people that you want to come work for you. And so I think that's a really important, um, a really important change that we're going to see with this. I don't know if it'll change, you know, how many people they get or the kind of people that want to go work there. But um, it's interesting, you know, we'll see. It's either way, I think it's a good thing, right? Even for the people that work there, because that's going to lead to probably greater satis uh, job satisfaction, right? A um, little bit more flexibility and kind of what they can do, where they do it and stuff. So we'll see. But uh, that's going to be the last article for this week. Again, this is your Threat Intel Briefing for November 13th, 2022 through November 19th, 2022. My name is John Good, and I've been your host for today. And if you're watching on YouTube, because we did do this live, uh, but if you're watching on the replay as well, make sure to leave a like, comment, and subscribe. That way you get notified for future content. If you think of anything that you want to see as far as content, not just for this episode, uh, go ahead and let me know that as well. I look at all that stuff. So either new, uh, new content ideas or ways that we can change the show because uh, I always look for that, look for ways to improve, uh, improve the delivery of the content. And then if you're listening on podcasting platform, because we're available on all the podcasting platforms, Spotify, iTunes, and so on, there's a whole bunch of them. Same thing, make sure to subscribe and leave a review as well. And also check out the description for a link to the show notes. And then you can see the articles that we talked about and some other articles as well. But uh, with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up and I will see you next time.